all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But I think that some people are just better at maybe not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. My guest this week is Josh Armstrong. He is the owner of Based Comedy, which is a comedy and entertainment company that brings stand-up comedy to the Gold Coast. He's got shows almost every night of the week at different pubs around the Gold Coast, and they're all free. It's awesome. I didn't realize that Australia had so much good comedy in it until I started going to these based shows, and um. It's awesome. He does a really great job. He puts on a good show. And if you want to have just a good night out, not spend hardly any money and get to watch some people sometimes die in the ass and sometimes kill on stage, it's a very fun night out. Especially if you feel like going to Nobby's Ark to watch a crackhead get beat up by a bunch of wimpy comedians. This conversation is very fun. We talk about drugs, we talk about happiness, and we talk about how being a DJ doesn't get you much, but being a stock boy at the body shop is almost guaranteed to let you deposit some stock into someone else's body shop. That's so gross. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Here it is. What Adobe edition? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and right now you have to have a trial period for that, don't you? You can just pirate it. <laughs> Do you? You can. I didn't say I did. I just said you can. <laughs> that, that is a thing you it. can do. I always feel like when everything, anything's pirated, it um, it becomes virusy. It's like virusy. Yeah, it's like you get AIDS. <laughs> I think like you're just trying to get a cheap fuck. You get AIDS. It's dangerous. <laughs> Look, I've had cheap fucks and I've pirated software, and I'm I'm clean on both accounts. How do you know? Because I get tested and my laptop works fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough, Josh. Yeah. Um, I have to apologize. I'm a bit, I'm a bit sniffly because since, oh, I, since I did the arm, I uh, I can't go bodyboarding, which means I'm not getting my saltwater rinses. Yeah, you fucking dislocated your shoulder at bodyboarding. Yeah, I've got a, uh, I've got an appointment at the fracture clinic at two thirty as well. So oh my god! Hopefully, I can convince them to surgery my shoulder back into where it should be. God, it's so gnarly. But you got to have ketamine, so that was nice. Yeah, but I feel like I could have probably done that without having to go to hospital if I really wanted to. You know what I mean? Yeah, there are people. It's around. such like that's such a roundabout way to get ketamine. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll just yank this out yeah, and start yeah. screaming. <laughs> do you know? I actually there was a kid. I used to do this fucking horrible job when I was at university, and my job was to sell people in like projects, pretty much people in really low income housing. New right. windows. Okay, yeah. That was my job. <laughs> so I was supposed to go. So we walked door to door. So we'd leave from our central hub and we'd all get into teams and we'd get into people's cars. They'd go and drive us to whatever shitty neighborhood in Denver, in the city of Denver. So like the worst neighborhoods possible because they all had the old decrepit houses. And we'd go up, knock on the door at dinner time after everybody came home from work and ask them if they wanted to replace their windows. And I'm talking to people that are like scraping by to feed their family. And they're looking at me like, I'm not buying a fucking window. Like as if I need a window. They've got tape on their windows and shit. They don't give a fuck. Were there, were there a lot of broken windows that you were pointing at? Like, hey, I noticed all no. of that. Right, okay. What they were they were telling us to look out for was like stainless steel. Like this certain type of stainless steel 
piping that's around the outside of the window yeah. or whatever. And we're supposed to, the whole, they gave us a speech and everything that we're supposed to do. And we're supposed to sit there and go, you know, you're losing all this money on your energy bill. You really need to update. <laughs> <laughs> it was so gunty. But anyways, so I, at one, one day I got partnered up with this group of people and this guy was driving. He was this, um, super like, seemed kind of like well off wealthy kid he just seemed like a kid that like came from money or something and he was driving us in his honda civic uh into the city i love honda civics yeah great car and he um and we were all like well we obviously have to go get high first before we do our job because that was a standard protocol and this kid i got the impression you know when you start smoking weed with someone you get the impression that they don't really ever smoke weed at all well, I don't, I don't smoke weed at all. So no, I don't know what that's like. Okay. So there's this, there's this very <laughs> I'm the guy. You're I'm the, the guy. guy you're talking about. <laughs> no, no. You're the guy that goes like, oh, I just don't smoke weed. Okay, He's right. the guy that is like, yeah, I get high yeah, all man, the time. Yeah, man, sweet. No, awesome. I'm fucking blazer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And then you kind of look at him like, that's cool. I, I, I couldn't give a fuck if you don't know how to smoke weed or you're not into it or whatever, but don't drive a car. If you don't know how to smoke weed. Oh, no. <laughs> so he's driving us, and he's high as fuck, but he's not handling it properly. And yeah. I, So I'm kind of watching him going, hey, do you do you want me to drive or whatever? He's like, no, 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 I got this. I'm cool. You know, he's like, I do this all the time. I'm like, you're <laughs> lying to me. You're straight up lying. But <clears throat> so we get into the neighborhood, and we're, we're doing this fucking just stupid job. And pretty much we just sign each other's papers and then wait the four hours that we're supposed to be there and then drive home. So the whole time we were out there, we we're just getting high. And as we're, um, as we're getting back into the car, he starts being like, man, I just, I wish I could get some fucking Percocet. And I'm like, yeah, what, what do you want? He's like, well, I just, you know, I just love the feeling of getting like just fucked up on Percocet and Vicodin. That's he's a like, big do you have jump. Any, yeah. He's like, do you have any pain pills? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. Where, where the fuck would I get those? He's like, do you know what I do? And so then he gets excited because he thinks he's telling me a, oh, no. like an inside secret. And he's yeah. like, you know what I do? I re- research like reasons why people need Percocet and Vicodin. And then I develop the symptoms and then I go to the doctor and then get prescribed the drugs. What? <laughs> yeah. So he had an addiction to pain pills that was so extreme that he would go, he would research symptoms and then like develop them himself, you know, just like embody them and then go into the doctor's office to get prescribed pain pills so that he could have them. Whatever the fuck it was, like get x-rays on his back or just some stupid shit. This is some inside the actor's studio stuff. Uh, it was... I feel like all you need to get pain pills as someone who gets pain pills for his shoulder, uh, love a tramadol, great time, <laughs> uh, is to go in and say like, oh, I have a, I have a sore back. Yes, Because exactly. they, ca- they can't, this, they can't do anything for a sore back. Like, they don't know, they mostly don't know what's going on. They're like, yeah, you've probably got a sore back. Yeah, I bet you do have a sore back. <laughs> what do you need for the sore back? <laughs> How can I please assist you? Here's some drugs. Oh, it's so funny. So he, and I think it was because he probably rents so many of the doctor's offices around the place that he would like go out of his way, he'd go traveling to other doctors to get more pain pills. It was so funny. So I'm oh, discovering yeah. this as we've been smoking weed for at least four hours in the city. And then we're about to drive on the fucking freeway back an hour away to where we lived, where we were going to university in Boulder. Yeah. So I am getting back in the car with him. I was already wary about him as it was because I just didn't couldn't tell if he could handle his shit. And I didn't think he could. He was all over the place. And then um, this was his new plan that he was going to like try and figure out how to get on more pain pills. And I was like, fuck, this guy is a real like this guy's fucked. And I don't need to be in the car with him. And I'm high as fuck now, so I'm terrified. And we get back on the freeway. We're going. He, we're driving in the inside lane where um, like the slow lane. 
and there's a semi truck on the far lane, and then there's a semi truck coming onto the on ramp right next to us. He doesn't see it because he's stoned as fuck. And he's just cruising in the lane. This truck is merging onto us. We're in a little Honda Civic on the freeway going 100 fucking miles an hour. And he's just like high as fucking. I'm like, oh, there's a truck coming. And he's like, oh. And he puts on the gas and we rush out in front of it. So the truck merges behind us. We're almost got sandwiched between two semi trucks. And we all look around at each other in the car and we're like, holy fuck, that was so close. We all kind of start laughing. He lets off the gas because he was like so surprised that he did <laughs> so my truck that just merged onto the freeway, drove up the ass of our car. Like, <laughs> and thank fuck it was a like, thank fuck it's a sedan. Because yeah. it had like it had it had some crumples on. Yeah, major crumples on. The fucking whole thing drove up the back of it no. and then just minced us, like oh. just ate the back of the car. Jesus. Oh, it was so fucked. It was the worst accident I think I've ever been in. It it the car spun around sideways. I it flipped up on the two wheels and because I was in the passenger seat, I was just looking down at the pavement, flying past my window. I was just oh. looking down, just watching like shoot, shoot, fuck shoot. that shit. Oh, so fucking scary. <laughs> and the moral of the story is. Like, if you can't handle your weed, don't drive. Yeah, of course. Ever. And don't pretend <coughs> like you can. Like, this is my most hated thing about being around people is when people aren't genuine. Yeah. I don't give a fuck if you don't can't do anything. Mm. I, I could not give a fuck if you're scared, if you're lonely, if you're tired, if you're anxious. I don't give a fuck. But if you pretend to be something different, you can't help that person. Mm. Like, what do you do with somebody like that? You think that kid ended up on, um, on smack? If you if you're doing if you're going around at doctors' offices and you've yeah. you've had to leave the area because you've <laughs> <laughs> you've rinsed all the doctors because you've scammed them all. Yeah, well, I mean that's the theory anyway. I don't know him. I don't have any idea where he went to. Let's find him on I Facebook. Felt... Yeah, let's, he's going to yeah. be on there. Post it. <laughs> I don't even remember his name. <laughs> I just have like a vague recollection of like kind of Asian features. Asian features. <laughs> yeah, that's all okay, I remember. Right. Was he Asian or did he just have Asian features? I don't know. Okay. I think that's like that's the closest <laughs> recollection I have him. I yeah. was stoned a lot of the time during that uh, job. And right. I don't think I lasted I, and especially after that that night, I never went back to that job again. Really? Obviously. I'm a shitty salesperson, man. I hate fucking selling people stuff. I mean, you sold me on coming here, so. Well, yeah, so I'm doing okay. <laughs> you've, you've scammed somebody. <laughs> oh, it's hardly a scam. No, it's great. Um, yeah, well, I didn't really talk to you yet about what you do. Yep. You run base comedy on the Gold Coast. That's correct. Yeah. How did you start that? Uh, so, okay, I started doing open mics and, uh, like, just performing at open mic uh, shows probably 2014, maybe sometime mm. around January, I guess. And uh, then the one that I was performing at the most, like, the Gold Coast local one was The Loft on Chevron Island. Um, and the guy who was running that was sick of it, uh, sick of the owner, um, and was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll take it over if that's cool. Oh, I, cool. I used to run, I used to run uh, like raves and club nights in Toronto when I lived there. All right. So I was a dubstep DJ for a year. Um, <laughs> that is, is so funny. I can't imagine so you in that good. environment. It was so great. That's <laughs> fucking crazy. It was such a good year. Wait a second. How did you even get in that? Into that? Uh, so, <laughs> so in Christchurch, when I when I was seventeen, uh, I left high school and went to broadcasting school. And then after six months there, I managed to land myself like a morning radio job 
in Christchurch, so I was the morning announcer at uh, Pulse RFM. Uh, 105.7 Pulse RFM is Gordon and Josh on the morning grind. And uh, <laughs> we... Classic. So we did, I did that for a couple of years. And then when I was 19, because it was a, it was a dance station, uh, so mm. I had, like, just access to every... Uh, every DJ in Christchurch and all the ones coming through. Mm. And so I started learning how to DJ and then put on a few shows uh, around Christchurch and then moved to Toronto after the earthquakes because I had some some friends there, Um, uh, the Christchurch earthquakes, that is. Uh, Mm. And then, uh, yeah, just was hanging out in Toronto, went went to a couple clubs and pitched an owner and he was like, yeah, cool, you can do Thursday nights here uh, for no money. So that was yeah. yeah, it was it was very not lucrative. It was the opposite of lucrative. Yeah. yeah. I um <coughs> I've invented this new term cuz I'm an idiot and I didn't know that in Australian you say inverted commas. Sure. When you mean quotations like for quote 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 marks like so when you say like oh it was a job inverted commas. I don't know if that's a an a strictly Australian thing. Um, it could be English or something. I don't maybe, know. Maybe, maybe. But but I, as a as a New Zealander, I take quotes. Like if you, you said say it, quotes, if you oh, said good. inverted commas to me, I would understand what you meant, and yeah. I, I wouldn't register that you had not said quote quotation marks. Okay. Um, it would I just it would just pass me by. Yeah. Uh, I'd never heard that term before. It's not right. a term that we use at all. And I've it doesn't only make heard any sense. It, it doesn't make any sense Inverted commas. Because it's yeah. double inverted commas anyways. It's like people who call like a colon. Like, oh, double dots. <laughs> <laughs> well, but double dots is yeah, kind of cute. Yeah. That's sort of sweet. <laughs> From double dots, your name. <laughs> double dots. Um, yeah, so I'd never heard inverted commas. But mm-hmm. I heard... Uh, Damien Power say it on a podcast one time in, in inverted commas. Right. But the way he said it with his accent, inverted commas, I thought he said in in inverted commerce. And he was talking about comedy. Okay. And so, and so <laughs> I, I literally thought that he had used this term, inverted commerce, like in exactly the way you were a DJ, that you give and get nothing back. It's inverted <laughs> commerce. So you're constantly <laughs> You were like, wow, Damo's getting real deep today. Yeah. That's amazing. And he's yeah. like, yeah, inverted commas. <laughs> I, I was so impressed with that phrase that I like even told my parents. I was like, yeah, this isn't a good phrase in Australia. <laughs> you can dub it. It's yours now. It's yeah, great. Yeah, now it's mine. You have to half credit demo. <laughs> yeah. fine. And it was only just recently. So I, I must have heard that a year ago on a podcast. And so I've been using this like concept in my head of inverted commerce that that's like what artists are like what any open mic is like you know if they don't get paid to do what they do they're basically operating in an inverted commerce yeah and um and then my my flatmate melina the other day said something and she's like haha in inverted commerce and she put did the quote marks with her fingers and And i was like like, oh "Oh, no my (laughs) reality came crashing up so anyways this is great though now and now in the dictionary for an inverted commerce, it'll say <laughs> created by uh, double dots, uh, Lorna and Damon. <laughs> Lorna slash Damon. Yeah, yeah, it's great. In inverted commerce. So you were operating an in inverted commerce in Toronto. Yes. You were getting paid fuck all. Yeah, yeah. No, there was Nothing. no there was no money doing that. But I was also the, uh, <clears throat> not to brag, the <laughs> stock boy at the body shop. Oh my god! Uh, in the at the Toronto Eden Centre, which is oh. one of the largest malls in the country, <laughs> uh, which was real good. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you were climbing that ladder. That I was indeed <laughs> climbing that ladder, getting cash and slaying gash. That's what I did. <laughs> that's what they called me. You old and gash. By, and by that I mean I, I fucked someone I worked with. That's <laughs> that's what I mean. And in the body shop? Not in the body shop, but in their body shop. <laughs> yeah, I did fuck them in their body. <laughs> With their consent, I hope. No, not, not at all. No, 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 no never. No. Yeah, that was. They were older times then. Oh yeah, this was this was 2010. You could do what you wanted. <laughs> it was years ago. Um, oh, that's classic. DJ by night and stock boy by day. That's right. So, anyways, we got way off track. So then. Um... So yeah. So I ran. I ran these club nights, and then uh, when I was I was doing open mic here in 2014, um, this guy left. So I started running. Uh, running this show uh, on Chevron Island. And uh, because I – so my my background other than radio and being a sick DJ <laughs> is, uh, is is marketing. So I, I moved into marketing after I left Toronto. Oh, okay. um, and so I was working as the marketing manager for some – for a property investment company, which turned out to be a massive scam, and that's a different story. Oh, gnarly. That guy is in, in court. Wow. <laughs> Actually, oh. I, I literally don't know how much I can say about that because it's an ongoing case. Wow. Yeah, yeah we'll just blaze right <laughs> past that. But, um, yeah, so, so that's, 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 that was my background as digital marketing. So uh, I started running this show once a month, uh, maybe once a fortnight. I, I can't really remember. And... <clears throat> Um, like I set, set up a website and Facebook page and did all, all the stuff you're supposed to do as a good digital marketer. Yeah. Um, and then I only ran it for a couple of months before I, I got sick of the owner too. And I was like, okay, this is fucked. Get, get fucked. Yeah, damn. <laughs> and then uh, probably probably five months later, I'd say, maybe four or five months later, uh, the wonderful uh, Amanda Short from the uh, Dog and Parrot Tavern, uh, who I cannot give enough credit to for pretty much forcing me into starting a business. Oh, um, cool. Uh, Fuck, it's amazing when somebody stands up like that and makes you do some shit that you should be doing. it was inadvertent on her part like she just em- she emailed me and she was like hey we want to run a comedy night at the dog and parrot in rabina can you do it and i oh, and i was sick. and i'd gone from like the at, the at chevron island we ran this dog shit show for mm. no money uh <laughs> with just open micers and just whoever like just scrounging whoever we could get and so I didn't want to. I, would, I didn't want to do it at all. I was yeah. like, I don't want to. I don't want to do this. Like the last one was a nightmare. This sounds horrible. So <laughs> I emailed her back, and I'm like, Yeah, sure, I'll do it. But you have to pay me this much money. And she messages me back and goes, Yeah, cool. That's great. When can you start? And I was like, oh. I was like, Oh, this is cool. But now I have to run it. Fuck. Yeah. Like, now I actually have to do it. Anyway, so now I had. A, so now we had a budget, and it's like a proper show. Uh, and so I start booking acts. And then, like, I turn up the first night on a Thursday and there's, like, 70 people in the room. Right. And I find Amanda. I'm like, this is, like, do these, are these people going to be cool when we start the show? And they're like, yeah, they're all here for comedy. I was like, right. what? And she was like, yeah, there's no one in this bar every Thursday. It's it's empty. And I was like, oh, cool. Sick. Oh, my God. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. I didn't even realize that there would be, like, a market for it on the Gold Coast, really. I yeah. mean, surely there is, but. Cause it, yeah, well, just because it was, it was missing. Yeah. And no one was no one was doing it, and the people who were doing it were doing it. Uh, I mean, I don't want to knock anybody, but they they weren't doing it properly. Yeah. Like the, you know, there were o- there were little open mic shows and bits and pieces starting, um, but it was al- always like part time mm. gigs for people. Like, oh yeah, I, I run a comedy night at this venue. Yeah, yeah. it's fine. And um, 
so yeah, I just I just don't done everything the way I thought it should be done and properly, I guess. And then uh, yeah, so it started working, and then the the Thursday night room became pretty popular, and then we started uh, working with other venues uh, in the same group. Um, so we we started the Cecil. I say we I started the Cecil um, <laughs> on Tuesday nights, and then yeah, just got more and more shows, and now and then I was able to quit the. Uh, not scam, but the job I'd gotten after that. Not the scam job, but a different one. Um, what uh, a great transition. How good is it when you finally start making money doing the thing that you want to do? And I got – the best was that I got to give a, say a big fuck you to the guy I was working for <laughs> and be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> and yeah, I was like, no, you. I'm sure I can make this work. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't need to be doing this day job shit anymore. Well, and some of that – like I, I think I got to that point – um, where it was like, there is no amount of money that's going to keep me doing the shit that I don't want to do anymore. I must. Mm. It's almost like that kind of level of desperation where you're just like, I literally cannot survive in this environment anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. I have to do something else. It's almost like the kick in the ass that you need to properly go. Yeah. And yeah. do something. Like, actually just believe in yourself and do it. But you don't sound like you have much self-doubt. You kind of just think about doing stuff and do it. Yeah, I, this is a problem with having a like a nice, privileged, sheltered upbringing is I just... <laughs> Did, did stuff and it was fine you know yeah. so I've never had to struggle <laughs> well do you know but the opposite of that though man is that a lot of times people who have a nice privileged easy upbringing don't have the drive to want to do stuff they become stuff. complacent yeah sure I guess easy. I guess so but I think that's more I think that's more innate than you're giving it credit for really you know you know what I mean like you can you can be super privileged and everything's going great in your life and you still want to be like look at like Julia Louise Dreyfus for instance her father is like a, like a, I think it was a steel shipping billionaire like oh wow billionaire like ridiculous yeah and she was still like no I want to be an actress and I'm gonna and she's the fucking one of the greatest comedic actresses of all time like yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. incredible yeah. Uh, and why should she have any drive to do anything mm. you know she, yeah. sh- she shouldn't at all, like on paper. Well, and that's interesting because it, it isn't like that there is one thing that causes people to want to do things. And this is what my whole question is. Mm. It's like, why the fuck does anyone want to do anything? Because a lot of people are like, oh, they want success. They want money. They want fame. They want blood. And, and so a person like that, an example like that is that, no, it's hard work to be an actress. You mm. have to fucking slog through a bunch of rejection and shit. Mm. And it's a lot easier to just use your dad's money and not. But there is always that feeling. It's like something's missing. Like if I don't have a connection to my purpose or something I really want to do or or feeling like I almost feel like it's a quest for your own potential, really. And if you stop seeking that potential or like trying to just slightly experience that feeling of the unknown, like, oh, could I do that? And then you do it and you're like, oh, I did it. You know, I almost feel like that's kind of the drive that pushes people forward in their lives. Yeah. Even people that have had everything in their life, even then, you know, like uh, there's that classic example of like somebody who's been raised with a shitload of money and in privilege and then they go slumming it for a while. Yeah. Because it's like it isn't the privilege that you want. It isn't the money that you want. It isn't success that you want. It's that feeling of newness, mm. that like discovery, exploration. That's a very optimistic way of looking at it. I like it a lot. Mm. I just wonder sometimes if it's not, if I'm not just staving off boredom. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if, if it's, yeah, if, if it's well, just me. What is it that makes, like, so what does boredom feel like to you? I don't know, not, not, like, not progressing or not doing anything. It makes, to me, yeah, it just, it makes me feel like there's no point in waking up tomorrow. 
Yeah. See, I like I have these. I have these. Uh, I, I have this first of all theory that you as a, a humans are just have, have humans have a base level of happiness. Mm. So I'm not more or less happy than when I was making sixteen thousand dollars a year, uh, just like working from home in my in my dressing gown, which yeah. I did after I got back to Christchurch from Toronto. Um, I was just wasting around doing nothing. Yeah. Um, I'm not more or less happy. I'm the same amount of happy day to day. Yeah. It's the same. And I still, I think the, the peaks and troughs are still the same. Hmm. But I've been able to take those, uh, those peaks and the things that lead to peaks and happiness and compound them into, I guess, uh, more financial stability and more progress and more realizing this potential yeah. I guess of myself so you don't you don't feel I mean because happiness is an odd one because happiness is an emotion that fluctuates right like so you and it and it also has its different levels so you could be like ecstatically happy yeah. for one moment and that's the thing that we're always trying to chase so everyone's always like oh just looking for happiness you, know, you just mm-hmm. want happiness but that's a hard thing to define and happiness is always only exists really on the backside of sadness like in contrast to sadness so when you say you're not any more happy or unhappy it's like you mean you're just kind of stable like you've always been you have you understand that happiness and sadness come in troughs and highs and lows but you're just kind of a stable person emotionally the base, yeah the base level of happiness is the same like it's mm. it's you some whatever whatever situation you're placed into uh, you are going to default back to your base level of happiness so i could give you a uh, million dollars today and you would be ecstatic but then by next week you would be back to your base level of happiness mm. and instead of your problems being oh, I've got to record the podcast today and oh, I've got to I've got to I've got to grade for my belt mm. you're you you'd be thinking okay i've got to uh, diversify this investment portfolio <laughs> now and you 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 still have the same the problems are still the same it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what level you're at they're just different problems so it's it's your it's whatever's in here i'm pointing to my heart it's whatever <laughs> is in here that causes your i think uh, your outlook and again that base level of happiness. And do you think that different people have different base levels of happiness? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So if you're a, if you're a cynical and depressed person, um, and I gave you that million dollars, the next week you'd be like, oh, <laughs> I need another million if I want to do this. <laughs> yeah. It sucks, you know. Or oh, yeah. my family and friends want me to share the money with them. Oh, mm. and then you're you know you you're going to return back to your base level of happiness. What causes a fluctuation in the base, and do you think it's possible to change your base level of happiness? Like, so if that's who you are and you're stuck at that level, is it possible to change that base level? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I've met some. I've met some just fucking horrible people who have a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, like they're not. They're well, not so money. Happy. Yeah. My argument definitely would be that money is not the thing that co- changes that base level of happiness. I mean, this is a really great way of out of outlying it. And what's cool about you is that you kind of had this awareness about yourself. You already knew this. So it wasn't it, it, staving off boredom was actually your escape rather than needing to get out of a depressive slump or getting away from an addiction, which is usually like somebody usually needs a door slamming in their face or a kick up the ass to get them to find that level. I had one of those. I had, oh, did I, I, I did have one of those. I had, uh, when I was 21, I had my first acid trip. Yeah. Um, and that was, uh, that was pretty outlook changing. What happened? Oh, I mean, it's hard to describe the inner workings of an acid trip to somebody. Right? It's always, <laughs> it's like telling a that. dream. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But, um, 
I, I, how have I, I described it to someone recently. Um, uh, so I, I feel like, I, I feel like with any kind of psychedelic drugs and having had my shoulder put back in position recently, the most recent experience I had was ketamine. Yeah. Um, where if you haven't taken ketamine or LSD or, or mushrooms, I haven't taken mushrooms, so I don't know. Um, but if you haven't taken any of these drugs, I feel like w- it, it's kind it's kind of like watching a television, uh, like an old VHS tape. You're watching the VHS tape and then someone reaches in and they pull the tape mm. out of the tape player while it's happening. Yeah. And that's kind of what starts happening to the television, except instead of the television is just what you're seeing around you yeah and so that's like ketamine Mm. and then with acid for me at least it was like someone had reached in and grabbed the tape and pulled it out but then i realized that there was a tape yes man. and i was like oh fuck there's a tape i didn't know there was a tape i thought this i was just living my life but Mm -hmm. it's a tape (laughs) and that's the kind of uh, it's it's so difficult to try and explain (laughs) oh man that's a great way of describing it thank you i i I like the tape analogy a lot because i feel like it kind of encapsulates the main points which is what happens with your perspective yeah uh which is not just uh, uh like a visuals or imagery thing um but it's also uh like literally your perspective like how you're viewing your surroundings and then it also gives you a little bit of understanding towards your uh i guess your your experience of what you are experiencing yes which yeah. is realizing that there's a tape yeah yeah in in a buddhism they call it like the observer um, the idea of the observer yeah. and it is, and it's like, if you can get, you know, so to get into a meditative state and you become aware of your thoughts and you become aware that this machine is like playing on a loop, yeah. you know, and you hear the thoughts and they're just going around in cycles or whatever. And then you're the thing that's actually listening to the thoughts or observing yeah. the thoughts or observing your experience. You're not the experience itself. You know, you're not the stories that you tell yourself. You're not anything. Yeah. That is exactly, as you say, like a video recording. Yeah, yeah. This thing is just a video recording. You're observing it. You're watching and interacting with it. Mm. And then you and then you have, of course, like Descartes' theory of the cave where yes. if you yeah. chain someone up and then they would stare at a wall their whole life. Play-Doh, and you played them. Yes. Play- oh, sorry, Play-Doh, that's right. <laughs> My bad. Uh, <laughs> I was confusing my philosophers. I feel terrible. How dare! <laughs> but then, yeah, Plato's theory of the cave. And if you if you had shadow puppets on the wall in front of them, they would think that was life. Yes. And then if you suddenly unchain them and turn them around, they would be like, "Oh fuck, what?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is uh, the same the same kind of thing that I had. But it, I mean, I assume that can be different for anybody who's experiencing like a significant psychedelic experience yeah. uh, where mine was kind of a, a matrixy one where I was like, Oh, I don't think any of this is real now. And that's yeah. really scary. And that lingered with you after you had finished your trip that you kind of were like, Oh, Oh yeah. I still deal, deal with this nightmare every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just I'm in this fucking movie and what am I doing? Yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, and I have to, and I, yeah. Or every time I've done psychedelics, uh, it was probably, probably four or five times. Uh, it has been like a, a peak, like it leads to a peak. Uh, and I don't mean the actual trip itself. I mean, it's, it feels like everything in my life leads up to a peak yeah. where I have done the psychedelics and I'm experiencing uh, the ego death or whatever you want to call it. And then I am like, oh, shit, I'm at the peak. I don't like this. And then I just try and forget that happened. Yes. That's the whole thing. 
Oh, fully. Yeah, that <laughs> comfort of coming back into a body again after after a trip like that. I know. Why? I don't know why anyone does it. <laughs> Having, oh, I know. Even though it is, it it, it completely remotivated me. It gave yeah. me a sense of purpose. I was like, oh, like I I can do whatever I want to do. Like, why am I just sitting around at home with my dick in my hand? Like, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So it's not healthy. Uh, yeah, but it did all these really healthy things for me. But I mm. still. If like if someone said to me, "Oh, should I do acid?" I'd go, "I'd never say yes." I know, like, never. yeah, be ready for it. But yeah, it's not fucking easy. No, I know. Well, and it's the same question a lot of people get uh, ask me about, like, why do you even fight? Like, what are you even doing that for? And it's the same thing I ask myself every day. Like, mm. I don't, I have no idea. I don't really have a good answer for that question right now. And that, and it is that same thing. You put yourself through really intense regimen. It's not just the fight. The fight itself is almost like that extreme moment inside a trip where you don't even know really what's going on. It's just too intense to even really properly yeah. like process any of it. But the lead up to it, so it's six weeks of hardcore training, nonstop, every day. You've got this responsibility twice a day, running, all this shit. You put all your body through this whole thing for six minutes, nine minutes of work, mm. and then it's over. And then after that whole thing happens, it's like you're looking back just going, Jesus, fuck, what was that? But it's that kind of empowering and life-changing and significant that you do it again that's that's interesting because i've always felt like the peak of the trip or a trip for me has me going why did you decide to like take those tabs of acid yes and then i go oh because i was bored is usually what i'm what comes back to me is oh i'm bored and then I go, wow. yeah, yeah. And then, I, and then I start asking myself questions like, well, why are you not happy? Uh, like, is do you need to change the VHS tape, which has a lot of uh, existential <laughs> baggage attached to it? Yeah, <laughs> like, man. what does changing the VHS tape mean? Um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, like completely redefine yourself, change the trajectory of your life. What are you doing with your life? Are you in the wrong body? Mine gets, yeah, mine gets real, real matrixy, I guess, at that point yeah. where it's uh, like, like when Neo's talking to the architect. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Have you seen them? You've seen them? Yes, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and he's like, oh, you've, we do this like all the time. You come in here, you pick out these, you know, these seeds for the new matrix and then we find, we do Zion and all that stuff. Yeah. And he's like, what? Oh. <laughs> it's like that where it's like, okay, am I, uh, you know, is, does my reality need to change and at what level? Yeah. Um, which, yeah, you know, that's not a... And do you, are you met with fear? Like, do you feel fear when that happens? Uh, y- yeah, absolute yeah. horrifying fear. It's crazy, huh? Why yeah. is it so scary to face something so alien and unknown? I guess because for me, it feels like, like, <laughs> the peak of the trip is me realizing that I don't exist yeah. and nothing exists. And that all of this, all everything that's going on is just a, like me, nothing, just entertaining itself. Yes. And if I accepted that as truth, I would have to go back to being nothingness until I got bored of that again and was able to conjure up this yeah. weird imaginary reality. <laughs> have you heard there's a theory, um, I can't remember what religion or what kind of philosophy it's, it's founded under, but there's an idea that like the infinite nothingness got bored of being infinite nothingness. So it formed distinction. So mm. it, it created something to bounce off of, yeah. which was the Big Bang in theory. So it was like the idea of infinite nothingness. Then something had to create something to bounce off of itself so that it could experience itself. It's good It's good that you said that because that is, that is literally, like during, an, during every acid trip, I have not just 
felt and understood that, but I have known that as a fact. Wow. Except that I feel like I'm the nothingness. You are. Well, exactly. Yeah. And that's, so yeah. that's their theory is that so we were a product of that nothingness that folded in on itself yeah. in order to feel itself. Yeah. And then it was like, this isn't enough. I don't want to just feel myself. I want to feel everything. Yeah. And so we're, we are expressions of the infinite nothingness experiencing something for the nothingness. So imagine, <laughs> imagine if, if, if you uh, like woke up tomorrow and that was a fact, like you were Oof. like, Oh, and you had to deal with that. Yeah. Cause that's what, that's what my trips off of me. So, yeah. yeah. So any, anyway, but that, uh, yeah, that led to me, uh, like, moving and doing everything that I guess led me to this point. So, so that's an interesting thing. So, but would you say that your happiness before then was the same? Cause happiness is a kind of shitty term to use. I don't like using the word happiness because it's so transient mm-hmm. because yeah, you've someday you feel, you just feel like you. I think a lot of times we have too much expectation. That I was supposed to wake up and be like charging out of bed. Like everything's perfect. Well, that's why you, that's why I use the term happiness because it is transient. So I'm not talking about, um, like, like, I mean, you could, I guess you could, you could change the word to say you have a base level of contentedness. Yes. But then if you say you have a, a base level of contentedness, that doesn't imply any feeling and what people are looking for is happiness. So when I say base level of happiness, I'm saying that it doesn't matter what you are given or what you work for and achieve. It's those, those moments of happiness are fleeting and you will always return to whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. That just base. And, yeah. and so, yeah. And I guess like, cause that can change all the time. Like you can always sit here and, and look back and be like, Oh, remember the days when I was at summer camp and I was so happy then, you know, or whatever it's all retrospectively, everything is different again. It's mm. all again through the filter of your current reality. So like whatever I'm experiencing right now, I'm always comparing and contrasting. And anytime you get stuck in that trap where you're like, Oh, but I was, I happier then maybe I need to go back to being that person because I was happier. We have this idea that if I go, okay, so I'll go back to that same town. Cause I was happy in that town. Right. Yep. Wasn't I, wasn't I? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll go back there and that makes me happy, but it isn't. It's none of those things. It is like this core central feeling of home inside yourself that you have to come home to. You have to come back to every time. No matter where you are, what town you're in, what year you're in, whether you're 97 or 18, you still have to be with you. Mm-hmm. So that that essential core level of happiness or contentedness is you. Mm-hmm. It's not the fluctuations in between. It's not the environment you're in. It's not the job you are doing. None of those things. But I do think, and I I guess to get back to my original question, is that that level of, I don't think you have to be stuck at that level of contentedness, whatever level it is. Say if we put it on a scale of one to 10 and you're on a five all the time, Mm -hmm. that if you are operating at a two all the time because of whatever life, whatever has caused you to operate at a base level of two, is it possible to do something within your life that's going to bump you up to three or four so that you can operate? Well, that that's, way? I mean, that's why therapy and pills exist, right? Yeah. For those reasons. It's to, it's because some people do operate at a two and you're like, that's, that's depression. That's, mm. that's the, uh, like that's the inability to experience reality through a positive filter at all. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And it's so crazy because you never really know what caused that thing. And you're always looking for these, like you're always looking for excuses, you know? And it's that typical like avoidance of responsibility where you're like, well, that John made me unhappy. He broke my heart and now I'm at a two, you know, like that that's all it is. And so if only I had John back, then I would be happy again. You know, then I'd come back to five. I guess so. I do think, I do think the people who operate at a two say 
um, that's that's I mean that's usually caused by some some kind of trauma in their yeah, early yeah. life, and it's hard to reprogram that. But I think it is possible, I guess, and I think psychedelics have actually like a lot of therapeutic benefit. Have you heard about the new trials that they're doing with MDMA? Yeah. Oh yeah, we've talked. Yeah, we was, just yeah. talked about this recently. And ketamine as mm. well. Um, and then obviously there was everyone in Silicon Valley is apparently microdosing LSD. So and mushrooms. <laughs> I did that. I microdosed mushrooms for a month. And we picked them ourselves and everything. We we went through the entire it's process. It's very organic. It's very organic. It's very fresh. You know, I only want the best for myself. Think local. Act local. <laughs> Sustainable. Yeah. Um, yeah, We so we went through the whole process of it. So we kind of like developed a relationship with these things and put them into little capsules. So I measured them out so that they were really very tiny doses. Mm-hmm. I mean, proper, proper microdoses. And um, I don't know. I don't, I, I would say like my core general level of happiness existed at maybe a four and it went to a 4.3 you know it was kind of this weird sensation that I just kind of I just woke up you know I just kind of felt like like you had an edge yeah just like a a light edge yeah Yeah. and it wasn't to the level I've heard Joe Rogan talk about kickboxers that take it to spar um and so it's not enough to obviously make you trip but they were saying that they felt like that they could see the future coming you know a little bit like they could see around people's hands better they could see what was well, coming out Joe Rogan talks a lot of nonsense <laughs> i could see the future As we all do i've yeah. had, i've listened to some weird podcasts of his and been like you know what man look Joe, look Joe Rogan is my favorite regurgitator of things he read on the internet that <laughs> yeah. he is the best at it he, he really will read is. something and regurgitate it immediately <laughs> yeah thank god you really for the... think you're operating below a 5 um, not anymore. That's I'd, good. I'd say, um, yeah, I, fl- I do fluctuate, man. I think I have a major tendency to fall into spirals and mm-hmm. I have always since I was young, I'm hypersensitive. And so I, um, weird things will set me off track. I mean, that's cause you're a woman, right? <laughs> Stupid women can't even drive cars. Can't regulate their emotions. <laughs> so typical, man. Um, yeah, so I'm not really sure what it was that caused it, but it was just this feeling of like I've had as as the weird, I, and I don't know, man. I, I can't blame it on anything. There's there's no way to like even intellectualize this. But I remember since the beginning of time, since I could remember, that I felt aching. And yeah homesick is the best word I can use to describe it. Like I felt like I wasn't at home and I didn't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. So as early as, as four, I remember it was four years old because I was at living at this certain house and we moved when I was five. So I had this sensation before I was from the age of three to four ish where I needed somebody else's attention. Mm -hmm. I needed something to fill this hole inside me. And it was that, the boy next door something so I had this like desperate need for someone to pay attention to me and hold me and make me feel better it was a fucking weird thing to have and that this thing exists inside me forever if I am not vigilant and taking care of myself and if I do and and on the few times that I've like on very depressed back um about five years ago I I just can get sucked into it I can just get stuck there yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, I I'm familiar with what you're talking about because I think that is a key, a key thing that drives comics and people to do comedy. Yeah, um, is that that void, uh, and sometimes it's created by 
you know, a shitty home life or your parents divorcing or uh, whatever. Mm. Uh, abuse. Oh, man, so much abuse. Yeah, <laughs> so, so much, much abuse. abuse. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So That's I, I know a, what you You're mean. in an interesting position there because so your job is to spend time around comedians and assess them more or less, get them up on stage, see how they go, you know, watch them. Do you ever notice, this is an interesting thing we notice about fighters and I notice it about myself, that you can almost kind of see how a fighter's going to perform before they get in the ring because you can tell where their mental state's at? Sometimes. Um, some, I mean, there's, there, like, there's plenty of fluctuation in comedy as well. Like sometimes an act will be doing great for ages and then they'll be working on new gear or just have something happen and in, in their personal life and then it won't translate to stage well. Yeah. Um, so it'll take time for them to get back to where they were. So, like, so you have plenty of fluctuations in, in how people are performing, but, I mean, they're always within a certain range, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, it, like, it's, dif- it's, difficult, it's difficult to tell. Um, I like to... Uh, I just give shit to people uh, who are performing at my rooms before and during shows just to get them a bit worked up. Yeah, I feel yeah, like, yeah. I feel like that. I mean, that's that's my personality, first of all, is just to be a cunt. A pest, I think. Yeah, sure. <laughs> pest, whatever. Like a little bit of a pest. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> that's a real nice word to use for me. <laughs> but you said cunt. I mean, cunts are kind of nice. Aren't they? They are the creation of all life. They're yes. the source of the creation of all life. Yeah, that's what and I I've... see myself as. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you are, Josh. You're bringing joy for. But I, I like to, I like to give, uh, give and receive shit. That's yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, shit, yeah. That's great. That's my favorite thing. So I also have told myself that I feel like that can be beneficial to people as well. Well, it take, it helps people take themselves a bit less seriously, like get out of their own head a little bit. You know what I mean? If you can banter with somebody and and take shit and give shit, you're not so rigid. Yeah, and I don't I don't want people to be getting up on stage after going, oh man, you're gonna be great. This is so good. You're great. Oh my god. Yeah. I would rather someone get on stage after I've been like, all right, dickhead, don't bomb. Like, <laughs> come on. Are you gonna do that shit joke you did last week about the cat? You know, just whatever, to you know, make him feel on edge. And yeah. Then, which is, and then and then there are rooms like Nobbies where um uh we, we run every Wednesday with uh, Dusty hosting, and because that's already like a f- bit of a fucked room because it's the dusty rich show and the people there are animals and (laughs) it's just you know it's it's a it's already a high stress environment and uh people don't give as much of a shit like it's not a standard show so like we'll we'll fuck around during that like i'll get on the mic or i'll play shit intro songs for people or just whatever um to make it even more hostile than it already is (laughs) because i mean that's what's fun right like we we had to we had to choke out and have a meth head arrested there a couple weeks ago oh my god it was fantastic what happened so uh david big dave woodhead was performing um and uh he has this he has this joke about being in darwin and um, being at a bush doof and trying to find some weed, and this guy going, "Oh, do you want to you want to smoke?" And then the guy is talking about meth. Uh-huh. Um, so he's telling this he's telling this story and doing this joke, and this guy with no shirt on, who's pretty jacked, he's small, but he's fucking jacked and looks like just violent. He like comes in the door. He's like, "What the fuck are you saying about me? You fat cunt!" Like, oh my god, yeah, vicious, and then disappears for a bit, and the crowd's like, "Whoa." <laughs> Guy, come, guy comes back like a He's minute like, later. 
You're talking about me because you're talking about meth, obviously. Uh, well, I mean, like, I hate to I hate to assume that because it almost seems too obvious, but it, <laughs> it is what it seems like. It seemed like he heard meth and someone making a joke on stage, and he was like, oh, man, I'm on fucking meth. And oh, he, my I, God. It was, it was very, very peculiar. He came back a second later and grabbed a beer and threw the beer from this chick's table at David oh. and called him a fat cunt again, and then... He went away and came back another time. And at this point, one of the bar staff was like standing at the door and he tried to come in and he's like, then it kicked off and then Dusty runs outside and starts going this dude. <laughs> and then suddenly there's 70 people from inside the venue outside. And this guy's trying to fight all of them. He's oh like, I can God. take, like some guy. Well, you are invincible. <laughs> like you really are. Yeah. <laughs> he certainly thought so. He, so does he got a good licks, a good couple licks in. Yeah. Uh, this one, like one dude's holding a chair, like he's going to fucking have it at him. So funny. Um, people oh are, it, and this is like hipsterville at Nobby's too. So you just got like a bunch of 20 something. I mean, hip to, it's pretty close to Miami and Palmy, right? Like it's not. In... Yeah, yeah. So I guess you, you get a little, a little feed in of the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just imagine like a bunch of people with like really long hair and like big t-shirts and they're like Ew. i've heard worse stories about nobbies than i have southport what <laughs> yeah oh i'm such a stereotypical asshole <laughs> i mean there are some characters getting around I, my my theory about the gold coast is the closer you are to the highway the worse it is yes i so, agree with you so people think like people think labrador's bad but really it's just because it's got a bent so it's got a lot of purchase on the highway yeah i live in labrador a few streets in from the highway beautiful yeah, yeah quiet street i've never heard a peep out of anybody <laughs> um and then <laughs> but you get close to that highway oh man jeez yeah. like i wouldn't live on the highway in mermaid you know like why would you <laughs> no scary yeah fully. even broad beach oh man yeah, it gets weird <laughs> i don't want to be near the highway anyway so but if you're looking to score that's where you know that's the place to yeah, be obviously. Yeah. uh so there's 50 people outside this guy is trying to fight all of them and he uh, has, he'd been asking for his bag. So Dusty, had, when he went outside, Dusty had hefted his bag at him and been like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And then um, uh, he st- like as he was acting up and taking swings at people, um, someone had taken his bag and gotten on the phone to the cops and like, you need to come sort this out. Yeah. So uh, the, he comes, he's, he's on the street. I'm not going to describe exactly the location because it would be too, you don't want to make it too confusing for anybody. But he was on the street and then he'd moved back towards the venue and like through the crowd of people going, where's my fucking bag? Give me my fucking bag. And, uh, like meth is in there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I figure I fi- apparently he was outside before the show trying to sell some stuff to some people, uh, maybe just some weed or something. I don't know, but it, it was, it was a bit dicey from the top. So, <laughs> um, then, uh, he's in the crowd of people, uh, going like, where's my fucking bag? And he takes a swing at this dude. And then immediately, uh, like one of the guys from Nobby's is like, has him in a headlock. Uh, and like, there's like six people swarm him and the whole crowd's like, choke him out, <laughs> choke him out, which is hilarious. Um, I see the cops coming. So I like, I sprint off cause they take it. They, they turn down a different street and I'm like, no, this way, mm-hmm. come back. And then by the time we get back around there, uh, he is, this guy's on the ground being choked out. Oh, by fuck. this dude and like six people are like restraining him and he's crying. He's crying. It's not bubbling out of his face. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I've been in prison for 13 years, man. I don't want to go back. Just let me go, mate. Just let me go. Just let me fucking go. 
Oh. oh man, I felt. I mean, I felt terrible for the guy. Yeah. But yeah. It was, anyway, and Dusty's standing over him, like, "Go to sleep, bro. <laughs> Just go to sleep." <laughs> Dusty's so fucking funny, man. Oh, that was he's great. So classic. And uh, so the cops take him away, and he's getting into the into the into the wagon, and he's like staring at Dusty and me, and like oh, covering God. the logo on my shirt, like, "Oh boy, don't find me." I'm like, "It's lucky you're not in the same place every week, Dusty. Thank God." Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna have to lay low at Novice for a little while. Oh, oh that guy's going to be in jail, though, isn't he? I would hope so. I assume because because then I went and found his bag and brought it to the police, and I was like, I don't know what's in here, <laughs> but you probably should look. <laughs> and then they anyway, and then the, we we started the show back up, uh, like after the guy was in the van, and Dusty's on stage, and then the cops walk in, and I had preemptively had queued up "Sound of the Police" by KRS One. Oh yes. So as soon as they walk in, it's like whoop whoop. That's the sound <laughs> of the police, and they're like, we're we're cheering the cops, and they're like they're laughing. It's great, and then Dusty riffs with them for. Uh, for 15 minutes while they look at the security footage and then oh, uh, funny. Yeah, it's home time. Jesus. Yeah, I wouldn't expect that at Nobby Sark. I mean, I've seen Dusty have a fight with that one guy that one time and he just like, he's standing so close to his head about like, they're so close they could have kissed and he's going, you're a cunt. You're a cunt. Where was, was this at Nobby's? That was at Nobby's, Oh yeah. yeah, I heard it. I wasn't there for that show, but I did oh, hear about it. Class. These three guys wanted to fight Dusty and then yeah. that, as soon as they stood up, every other dude in the crowd stood up and they're like, oh, maybe we should go. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> and Dusty was so close to his face. It just started tussling and everyone stood up and he walked away and then after the show was over, he came over to me and he goes, where the fuck were you? And I was like, oh. That is I'm a good sorry. point, Lorna. I know. I was like, well, shit, man, I should have been in there. I should yeah. have been throwing elbows. But <laughs> I was like, actually, I'm a martial artist. I don't do those things. A couple of swift punches and it would have been fine. Come on. It would have been over. Oh, fuck. Um, what was the original point? Oh, what I was asking you about was um, really what I am curious about. What is like the... You were saying that it seemed to be a core essential feature of comedians that they have this void that they're trying to fill that makes them go through bombing potentially, like completely eating dick on stage, and then they keep coming after it. They keep going. They keep pushing through it. Because I think comedy is one of the most ruthless forms of art, yeah, public art that you can do. Not many, not many, art, uh, not many forms of art take place in pubs. <laughs> no, it pubs with an expectation that you must entertain me, clown. Yeah, be funny. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. funniness is a tough one. You know, if, if a joke goes wrong, you're, you're like, you look like the scum of the earth. Well, what I, what I know from, uh, I've, again, I, I don't get up and do comedy much anymore myself, but what I know from writing and performing is that everything you write you think is funny. Yeah. Because in your head, you start off and it all goes perfectly so yes. you you do the first bit and you're like that'll crush and then i'm gonna up the ante with this bit and <laughs> what actually happens is you get up and you say the first thing and someone that most of the people don't get what you mean yeah. and some people don't hear you and then you say the second thing and it adds to the confusion <laughs> and then you say the third thing and that's i'm going goodbye yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just aggressive and rude at that yeah. point because they never understood the build <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly but most people i mean i mean every every comic has a different writing style as mm. well like uh uh i, I would write like I would write everything down in long form, like these just long, ranty, fucking long-winded uh, yeah. bits of comedy. Um, and I would just try and add layers and layers and layers to it, which would sometimes work and sometimes not work at all. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I mean, you've got guys like Luke Heggie, who is just a masterful comedy writer, um, yeah. just astounding. Yeah, fuck, he's great, man. And then, like, Dusty, who we're talking about, uh, just 
is so free form. It's almost all improv. And then like Mel Buttle, for instance, like I've seen her work out jokes uh, night to night and like the core idea is the same, but she'll change uh, the wording and some of the elements just just on the fly. Uh, and it's it's really impressive, but all the all the core pieces are still there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, it, that's it really such a cool thing. I never really thought of that. That you you get to spend like because especially because you get a headliner, your headliner comes for like the week, and you spend most of the time at each one of those shows with them. So you get to watch. And, and them. often they stay in my place too. So oh, my cool. house is all set up for to accommodate traveling comics. And, and so basically you get to watch them work through their shit and watch their jokes develop, watch how the writing changes, how ideas come and disappear. That's so cool. Yeah. Because that's good. something that happens to me, you know, like obviously when I'm making artwork at my house, there's like different iterations of it, but I just keep working through it, working through it. And then mm-hmm. it's an odd thing where you work that hard into something that you get kind of sucked into it. And then you take a step away, walk away, and then the next day you come back to it and it looks totally different than what you're expecting. Because, like, you just keep putting layers and layers and layers on shit. And you don't, like, it's almost unrecognizable from where it started. And I always wonder that about, about jokes because it's not like, it's not like that a comic would just get up on stage and just suddenly say something funny. I mean, Dusty is, a, is the, as you say, it's more ad-lib style. But, like, a joke, an actual hour of comedy has mm. gone through thousands of iterations before it's got to the hour that it is. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's, I think that's true with, with anything. Like, I used to... Uh, I used to write a lot, um, both creatively and then do like content writing. Mm. Um, and I, the the best way to approach writing, uh, and I think this is true for comedy too, whether you're writing it or developing it on stage or whatever, um, is to do the thing, get as much out as you can, and just let it be shit. Yes. And then you <laughs> yeah. come back. You, yeah, you do. You come back the next day, and then you can you can fix it, mm. and you can see it with a uh, with fresh eyes, um, and then everything makes more sense. Mm. Uh, and like, like people get trapped in, um, uh, get trapped where they'll, they'll, you'll write something and you'll get to like word 350 of this 500 word article you're supposed to finish and you get stuck yeah. and you're like, no, I need to do it. And it's like, don't worry about that. Just put nothing or put a word that doesn't make any fucking sense and then get to word 500 and when you come back tomorrow... Yeah, it'll make sense. Because you're wor- you're no longer working from nothingness. You're, right, yeah, yeah. You're fixing You have to it. build a skeleton first, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, oh, totally. I'm experiencing that right now. I, um, I wrote a book when I first started being sober. So I, October 31st is the last time I drank two years ago, I think. So it's almost been three years now. Um, and I... On November 1st, I started writing a book because I was like, well, I obviously need to transfer my addictions. Yeah. <laughs> Got to fill the void somehow. Yeah, and um, so I started writing. It took me three months and I just wrote everything. Yeah. Just whatever the fuck came into my head, I just started writing. Every day I forced myself. I just said, I'm just going to sit down and write and keep writing, keep writing. And um, I ended up with, a, I don't know, 25 chapters or something in this book over three months. And then it, it was like, I think at the time I just needed that expulsion. Then major life changes, shit happened, and I moved back down here. I split up with my ex. All this, you know, life things started happening. And I never looked back at the book again. Like, I just kind of left it there. It was just in my computer and never went back to it again. And I remembered vaguely, like, oh, yeah, I wrote the book, this book one time. And then um, just recently when I tore my ligaments in my knee and I had three months off of fight training and everything, there was, like, literally nothing I could do. I couldn't... Um, do anything for about the first month. You can't month. hop around. 
that was just, so I was just sitting there and had to completely restructure who I was as a person because in the past two years, I'd been defined by being this Muay Thai fighter and I was an instructor and this is what I do and this is my life. I'm a personal trainer. And then all of a sudden everything came to a screeching halt. And the first thing that came back to was that book. And I was just like, oh yeah, I wrote this book once. I, it kind of just like stumbled across it while I was trying to make other documents, looking for some writing that I'd written. And then I was I started reading it and I spent three days reading through the whole book and I was like, holy fuck, there's actually, it's messy and it's juvenile, but there's merit in these ideas yeah. and it's worth rehashing. So now every day I just sit down and I've got the skeleton to work on and just rebuild. It's like blooming out brand new flowers. Yeah. You know, every single chapter there was an idea, there was a rough something. And now I just go in and I write whatever I need to out of the top of it and it's so much better. That's great. Yeah, I have I have that I have that too. Like some some things I look back on in my uh like my documents folder and I mean the wor- the worst thing about having written or done anything is looking back at it and feeling sick oh <laughs> jesus i know oh, tell okay. me about it but there was this one thing i wrote when i was 16 and it was uh like it was a, it was a joke it was like a oh like a th- maybe forty thousand word or thirty thousand word like novella called <laughs> the blue sandwich um there's this book series called uh adrian mole or the secret diaries of adrian mole i think or Adrian Mole, aged 13 and three quarters. I don't know if you've heard of it before. No, I haven't. It's quite a well-known uh, book by a British author whose name I can't remember. Um, but... Oh, sorry. Um, Bones. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. It's a British book, uh, British author, uh, really good series. And she wrote these diaries of... About this kid called Adrian Mole, and she started at him being thirteen and three quarters, and I think the last one he's like sixty. Like it goes through oh, this whole shit. thing. Yeah, and this kid thinks he's an intellectual. Like Adrian Mole thinks he's an intellectual. He describe he self describes as an intellectual, um, and he's not, he's just not. Like he's just, he's just <laughs> an idiot, uh, and he's you know trying to be something that he's not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and there's one one in one of the later books. Adrian Mole himself is writing a book. Oh, of course he is. And this book is about a caveman called Ugg. <laughs> and it's the worst thing you've ever read in your life. And it's all <laughs> stuff like Ugg went up the hill. Uh, Ugg went down the hill. Yeah, <laughs> like it's that. It's, it's like there's no purpose. There's no point. And I thought it was hilarious. And I wanted to write a book like that, but also combine it with my other favorite thing, which was the worst similes and metaphors and analogies <laughs> that you could come up with for anything. So, like yeah, this, this book starts, and the the it's <laughs> I think it's about a guy called Peter Goodman. He's a firefighter, and his family tragically dies in a house fire. Oh, of course they did. And so he has to stop being a firefighter, and then he becomes a hitman for the one of three tax departments. And that's the whole <laughs> that's the whole book, and it's just dumb. And like the the first line is like Peter's eyes were blue, the color. Oh, a deep blue, the colour a car would be had it been painted a deep blue. Like, and, and <laughs> yeah, it's just, shit. and the whole thing reads like this. Like, I was persistent. Like, it just <laughs> reads like shit the whole way through with these horrible similes and these terrible metaphors. And every, like, every page, Peter's doing something that is, is vaguely described and then it will go into <laughs> long descriptions of nothing. And then he'll go off and, like, there's one point where he, like, he joins a circus for two years and he, then it was a bit boring. So he came back. 
<laughs> like that's like it happens in a line. Like it's nonsense. Oh and I read it back and I I love it. I, I love my sixteen year old self for having done it. Yeah, and sometimes man, I go the back commitment. And, Yeah, I know. And sometimes I go back and I work on it and I'm like, Oh, I can fix this and yeah. I can add another shitty metaphor over here. Yeah. And <laughs> well that's the beauty of like allowing things to incubate. You know, I think people are too especially now with so much information and and give me stuff faster, faster, faster. Mm. I need a three minute video. Now cut it down to two because I don't have the attention span. It's like we get so stressed about getting something done that Mm. you don't let it have that incubation phase because you could turn that into something really fucking amazing with over years of like, the more characters you meet that are like that, you can draw into that character a lot more. You know what I mean? You can really Mm. build this thing up into something cool with having the life experience to do it. The tough part is knowing when you're done and it's time to move. Yeah, because I think um, I used to have a really hard time with that. Like uh, when I finished a painting, that it's and I still look at them every time I look at anything and go, like that that needs changing. This could be better. I can't. But as your skill develops, and this we were talking about right before we turned the mics on, was that like you have this feeling, um, like that if I don't look at my artwork or my writing over the last five years and be totally embarrassed of it, then I fucked up. Yeah. I'm a failure. Yeah. Like if I haven't been changing enough to cringe so bad at everything I've done. And it's it's good reading this book now because there are so many parts where I thought I was being real witty, you know, like right. <laughs> super clever. And then I read it and I'm like, you, like it actually <laughs> makes my heart hurt. I'm like, you're <laughs> such a fucking idiot. It's the worst. It's the worst. It's the worst. I look at old jokes I have in my phone. Oh, God, oh, God. Sick. It is. It does. <laughs> but then the funny thing is, it's like, so now I'm on my high horse going like, you idiot. Yeah. And then I'll release this book because I will. I must get it out in the world eventually. Mm. And you have to at some point just go, that's me now. Good. Done. Yeah. It's the best I could do for today. So at 32 years old, this is the best I could do. At 47, if I read that book and think it's the best thing I've ever done, I fucked up. Yeah. I have got to be always getting better than that. Yeah. There's no point in looking back and being like, oh, good. Being I was content. good then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I, think there are, I think there are very few moments that should be like that where you're just like, yeah, that, that was great. That was really good. Well, I think that you never get that cringe or, you, or you, the cringe is less pronounced if you genuinely were doing your best. Yeah. In the same way that I was talking about with sort of, sort of inauthenticity is like that's the grossest thing to me. Anytime that you think you're better than you are or trying to be something or trying to be impressive or trying to be cool or, you know, trying to put on a show, you are going to be sorely upset with yourself after mm. it's over because it's so embarrassing. Mm. But if you did actually walk into something and you did the very best you could and you put it out there and if, even if it isn't great, you did the absolute best you could and you weren't trying, you weren't trying to be somebody – Fucking that cringe is like, oh, gross. I tried, but I wasn't good enough. Fine. I have one moment in my life. I think that I would like, I would, is, is that it's perfect. It's just, really? yeah, yeah. I, uh, I won the Christchurch Rotary speech competition when I was right. 12 years old <laughs> with a speech on George Bush. Um, and it was, I think it's probably the funniest thing I've ever done. Right. And I'll never get to relive it. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have the speech anymore, so it's lost forever. Oh, damn. But I think that's kind of perfect though, because I can remember it fondly. Yeah. And you can tell people that you were the best at something once. Yeah. And then nobody can verify it. That's true. They can't <laughs> verify. I'm sure I'm on a list somewhere <laughs> in like a back office of a rotary club. <laughs> Would they, no one filmed it? This was what? 2003? Yeah, so it wouldn't nobody obviously was having their camera phones, but you'd think your proud mother would be there with a video camera. I figured after nine eleven we would have been filming everything. 
to yeah, be honest. True, and it yeah. was post 9-11, but we still weren't. Nah. Well, good for you, man. It's like graffiti. It's like the beauty of fucking graffiti is that it, it exists for the few moments that it exists for. It could be a year. It could be three days until someone wipes it over. Yeah. But And it's the same concept as a Buddhist mandala. It's like it exists until they blow it away. And they will painstakingly create this thing to absolute perfection. Mm. And hours, thousands of hours go into work on it. And yeah. then they blow it away as soon as it's done. My ex-girlfriend uh, has a mandala tattooed on her back. And <laughs> Greg Sullivan, uh, who is a great comic um, from Mullumbimby, Brisbane, Queensland area, um, used to be Sully on Triple M, has a joke about how uh, about how the mandala symbolizes the imper- impermanence, impermanence of everything. Yeah. <laughs> And I filmed it for her and like sent it to her, and, I, and she was like, "Oh, like, you dickhead!" <laughs> yeah, take that! You thought those Chinese characters were cool. You thought that mandala was cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Josh, man, we've been talking for uh, just over an hour now, so I should let you get back to your normal life. It's way too long. It's, it has been way too long. It's been very painful. So. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so it's now now we just time to get on that ketamine, and get naked, and you know. Sweet. <laughs> this pizza. better be. I'm. This better be really happening because I came all the way here for naked ketamine time. I know. I'm sorry. I lured you into a podcast first. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good talking to you, man. Sweet. Thank you. Um, where do people find you? Oh, just Google based comedy, I guess. Based comedy. B a s e d. S e d. Cool. Yeah, and you're at pretty much on the Gold Coast every night of the week. You've got a show going right now, don't you? Oh, it's getting there. I've got. I've got a bunch of new venues starting up soon. So keep an eye out for those. Cool. Yeah, and if anyone's interested in comedy or wants to hear more Australian comics, it's absolutely the best way to do it. I go to your shows all the time, because, and especially to see feature acts that I'd never, or sorry, headliners that I'd never get to see normally, or you don't normally have to pay to go see them. They get to come up and try and work out new material. It's so good. And I've expanded my range of Australian comics. I didn't even know that there were so many around, and good ones too. Yeah. It's awesome. That's good. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thanks,